Let's turn in our Bibles this evening to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. We'll read God's Word under the heading of Peace by Providence. And then afterwards we'll turn in our forms and prayers to Lord's Day 10. Lord's Day 10. But first we'll consider the Word of God from 2 Kings chapter 4. Beginning in verse 8. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call the Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is there to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well... She has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son. About that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her, when the child is grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him up to his mother. And when he had lifted him up and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon. Then he died. And she went up and she laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey. And she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she sent out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me. And has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garments and take my staff in your hand and go. And if you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. Lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the woman of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him the child was not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. 
So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth to his mouth, his eyes to his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, uh, came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. Here ends the reading of God's word, and we'll turn now to our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 10, which is on page 211 in the Forms and Prayers. Page 211. Beginning in question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Flipping over to question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. My most dear friends, many of you here may aspire one day to have a family, to have a home maybe a spouse and some children, the idea is that we would like to create a life for ourselves. But for those of you who may not yet have any of these things, if you go speak to someone this evening who is married, maybe who has some children, they will tell you that creating the family is only part of the job. The household then needs to be maintained. You see, unseen in the creation of a household, unseen in the creation of life, is the groceries that need to be bought, the meals that need to be prepared, the floors that need to be swept, the laundry that needs to be cleaned and folded and put away. And I'd imagine this is only the start of the list, right, moms and dads? See, there's a difference between creating and maintaining. In Catechism, Lord's Day 9, our catechism is very clear that God is the creator of this world. Out of nothing, He created. Lord's Day 9. 
But here in Lord's Day 10, we are told that God not only creates, but that He also maintains. God does not just create and then step back as if He has no involvement in this world. But just like your mom or your dad needs to care about the upholding of your home, even down to the minute details, so is God involved in the care of this world. And we call God's care of the world the doctrine of providence. Now there is one major difference between the way parents care for their homes and the way that God cares for this creation. There is no such thing as a perfect parent. Parents know this well. If we look into our hearts this evening, we know that we often rule our families impulsively. We rule our families according to our own wills. But God is said in Lord's Day 10 and throughout the Scriptures to rule this creation perfectly. So that everything, even down to the smallest details, does not escape His perfect plan. Remember that the Catechism is written, question one, for our great comfort. God's providence, His upholding of all things, is supposed to be a comfort to you and to I. We need to put it in perspective, my friends. God didn't just create you. He cares for you. God doesn't just know you and your concerns, but He cares for you and your concerns. And my friends, God does all things well. He does all things well. A famous reflection on this The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, we know that God works all things for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purposes. Do we believe it? All things. Friends, we must believe it. Without God's providence, this world would be nothing but chaos and confusion. But there's comfort in knowing that God is the one who is in control. God is the one who orders and directs all things and He does it for our good. See, providence can bring us great comfort from this theme this evening in that it assures us that everything goes according to God's plan. Providence assures us that everything goes according to God's plan. I want to show you this in two Motions to outline or two points from Second Kings chapter four. Peace. God will do all things well. And peace. God has done all things well. Notice the tenses there. In the future, we can know that God will do all things well. And when we look back on the past, we should know that God has done all things well. He makes no mistakes. Let's look first at that first point, peace. God will do all things well. When we come to the story of 2 Kings 4, we come to a remarkable story of faith in God's providence for the future. This story comes on the heels 
of the prophet Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. It says in 2 Kings chapter 2 that he was taken up into heaven. And then Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 3 takes his place in Israel as the greatest prophet at that time. And what we see in chapter 4 is that Elisha would have been different than the prophets of his day, the other prophets. He wasn't the only one. In that Elisha seems to be a traveling prophet. See, the other prophets stayed in their hometowns. Maybe they had a family and a job. But this, loca- this story is located, verse 8, in a town named Shunem. Shunem was about 15 miles from Mount Carmel, and presumably the prophet would pass through what's called the Jezreel Valley in which Shunem was located. He would pass through from Carmel through Shunem to Jordan. So the story says he's constantly passing through this little town. And there's a woman there, it says verse 8, a wealthy woman, who expresses some great hospitality to the prophet. She begins to feed him as she sees him walking by. And so we find out that Elisha is a lot like us. When somebody offers you free food, you keep going back to that person. And so he keeps going back to the woman in Shunem. And then she goes above and beyond even normal hospitality. The story says that she builds him a room on the top of her house. You have to remember that in the ancient world in warmer climates, they often have flat roofs. And so she built him this roof, or excuse me, this room on the top of her house. And it also shows a great reverence. She couldn't have the man of God just sleeping on the couch or in a spare bedroom. She makes him his own little place. The idea that the, the idea we're supposed to get here, the impression we're supposed to have, is that this woman had a great love for the prophetic ministry of Elisha. She has a great faith in God. In fact, we could even say she has contentment. Contentment in God. We see that actually is magnified in verse 13. In response to her hospitality, Elisha asks this question, See, you have taken all this trouble for us, him and Gehazi. What shall be done for you? Would you have a word spoken to you on behalf of the king, or to the king, or to the commander of the army? Elisha here wants to return the favor to the Shunammite woman, and he offers her, verse 13, anything she wants. We can scarcely think of a higher office in Israel than the king and the commander of the army. Nobody has more money, more influence than the king, and nobody has more power or more strength than the commander of the army. He's saying to her, do you want me to speak to them on your behalf? Is there any problem you're facing? I can speak to the king for you. Do you need more money? Do you want more land? 
Do you want more influence in politics? More influence over the nation's power? Anything you could imagine is the idea of verse 13. Speak, and I will give it. Congregation, look at her content response in verse 13. I dwell among my own people. I dwell among my own people. Even Elisha is, is shocked at her response. It's as if she said, I already have all of I need. All my cares are being taken care of. My current lot in life satisfies me. I don't need anything else. What faith? It's a picture of faith. She doesn't jump at the chance of having more. She expresses contentment in her lot in life. I imagine that she still would have had needs like we all do. I think we should interpret her, or her response in verse 13 as an expression of faith. What the Lord has given me, I am content with. I dwell among my own people. Now here's the problem in this story. Providence, God's care of all things, is very easy for us to affirm when things are going well, isn't it? It's easy to say, God's in control when we're happy and healthy and wealthy. And look, she is, verse 8, it says in our ESV Bible, a wealthy woman. She has money already. She already has a house and resources to build a whole little house on top of her house. She probably already has political influence, as rich people often do. The cynic inside of us might say, well, sure, I would be content in her situation, just like we say about wealthy people now. I could be content if I had a million dollars in the bank. I could be content if I was healthy and wealthy. You see, we too affirm that God is in control of this world when good things are happening. Even unbelievers think this way. And I'll, put, I'll prove it to you. Any of you folks like country music? How many country songs written by unbelievers thank God for the girl? Gotcha. How many unbelievers in the possible tragedy say, thank God for my safety or for my children's safety? Thank God for vacations. Thank God for health and wealth. It's easy to affirm the first half of what Lord's Day 10 is talking about. It's easy to say, rain and fruitful years and food and drink and health and prosperity are from God's hand. It's easy to have contentment in plenty. But what about the rest of life? You see, life isn't all happy-clappy. 
Life isn't all rain, fruitful food, drink, health, and prosperity. But we experience, and this is something you should catalog in your mind to help you understand this world, but we also will experience in this life bitter providences. That's what the catechism goes on to say. That all things, not just the good, but also drought, lean years, sickness, poverty, also come from the hand of God. See, she has contentment in plenty, but she also has a contentment in loss. So, Elisha asks her, what should I give you? She expresses contentment. I already have all of I need and all that I need. And then Gehazi points out that she was childless. Remember that to be childless in those days was to be considered a curse from God. Remember that in Genesis 3, verse 15, God said that through childbearing, the Messiah would come. This was every woman's chance to be considered part of the line of the Messiah. So to not have a child was to not be part of the line of the Messiah. And so Elisha brings this woman to the top of her house and promises her a son. And I don't think we should translate verse 16 or interpret verse 16 as her doubting Elisha, but instead shocked. A shocked reaction. No, Lord, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Please don't be joking. And then she conceived and bore a son. And so for a year, she is doubly blessed. She has all she needs in this world, and now she even has a child. Everything's great. It's picture perfect. And so the child grows, we read in verse 18. And after some time, he is out in the fields, he's with his father, and he gets some sort of sickness, and he cries out, my head, my head. And the servant boy carries, or servant carries the boy to his mother, and the Bible very, almost nonchalantly, it seems, says, and he sat on her lap until noon, verse 20, and then he died. loss. The woman who had everything, who was content in all things, now has loss. The question is, how will she respond? One interesting thing in the ministry, you deal with death quite a bit. I said in a sermon recently also that there's nothing more joyous than burying someone who lived a good and faithful life. Christian's death day is but his wedding day. But I don't know if there's anything more sorrowful than the death of a child. Some of you women who are here may have struggled with miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of a child. And it can be one of the most traumatizing things you may have to face in this life. I think this woman would have experienced many of those emotions, especially when we consider that this was the child of promise. 
child of prayer, given in love, yet taken away. It is a bitter providence. But notice how she responds. This is what the scriptures are trying to highlight for us. She responds in faith. Verse 21 says she went up, she laid him on the bed of the man of God. Now some people think this is a vindictive act because a dead body in those days, you must remember, would have made uh, anything it touches unclean. So she, some people think she's going in, she's putting it in the room so that the man of God can no longer use it. Now, I don't think that's the case. What you need to know about the climate at that time is it's very hot and dry. And the common practice of those days would be that when somebody dies, they would have been buried almost immediately. By the time the sun goes down, they would have been already buried. But the text doesn't say that she makes any funeral preparations. Instead, I think what she's doing here in verse 21 is making preparations for the resurrection. And verse 23 reveals the bedrock of her faith. She goes out into the field to her husband, and she says, I'm going to the man of God. And after he questions her, he seems to be a cynical man, a man of no faith. It's look at how she responds. Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And look at how she answers, all is well. The Hebrew word she responds with here in verse 23, shalom. He questions her. The boy is dead. Give up. There's no point. The son of promise is gone. Shalom. Peace. And it's in the future tense. It will be peace. It will be well. Despite the bitter providence, God will work it out. Congregation, what she's doing here, she's surrendering her future into the hands of God. She's saying, I have faith in the future that God will not disappoint me even though I've experienced this bitter providence. See, she not only has contentment in plenty, her wealth, her money, her success, here she shows that she has contentment, she has peace because of God in her life. She knows that everything comes to her by the hand of God, not just rain, fruitful years, health, and prosperity, but also the drought, the lean years, the sickness, the poverty. All of it comes not by chance, but by His fatherly hands. Yea, even bitter providence shall be made well. Here's the application. Therefore, when troubles overwhelm us, when questions multiply, when sorrows seem to bear down upon us and threaten to destroy our hope, and the bitter providence forces us to cry out, Why God? 
the Shunammite reminds us that our Father knows best. Our Father knows best. And we can entrust our lives into the hands of God Almighty. He will work all things out in the future. Let's consider the second word this evening. Peace. God has done all things well. She has a hope for the future, but now as she looks at the past, she says God has done all things well. She has a contentment in the future, peace God will bring, but now we shall see that she has a peace when she looks back on the past. Church, what we need to see this evening is that God will not only do all things well, but God has also done all things well. So it says in verse 25, the Shunammite woman saddles her donkey and she begins a 15-mile journey, six hours of travel, we think, to Mount Carmel. It says in verse 25 and 26, when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to her and say to her, is all well? Shalom with you. Is all shalom with your husband? Is all shalom with the child? Three times, Elijah, through Gehazi, asked her, Shalom, shalom, shalom. Is there peace with you? Look at her response in verse 26. All is well. Shalom. How could she say that? In the depths of her despair, she says, past tense now, all is well. I think what she's saying here is that God makes no mistakes. The first instance, I've said this a few times, but I'm trying to drill it into your heads. The first instance of shalom in this passage, she says, God will do, will do all things well. And now it's in the past tense, all has been well. Put yourself in her shoes. Her one child, the son of promise, is dead at home, and she says, all is well? How is it well? We will see in a moment her response to Elisha when she gets to him. Her heart is shattered. Bitter providence takes a great toll on us. But I think Joel Beakey is right when, we, when he says that we are, what we're seeing here is the submission of faith under the hand of God. That even though her son has passed away, she is bowing under the providential hand of God. This reminds me of Job's response when he hears the news that his family has died by some natural disaster in Job chapter 1, and he responds, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think Job and the Shunammite here are making that same statement. There is no mistakes when it comes to God. 
even when the providence is so bitter, even when the pain is so great, the Christian does not need to despair because our Father knows best. Doesn't the Catechism say this? In question 28, no matter what comes to us, we can be patient, thankful, confident, not because we are healthy and wealthy, not because we are content with where we are in life, but because we have a faithful God. Shalom. It is well with us. Not because we have all we want. Not because we've been spared every affliction. But because everything comes to me by my Father's hand and He loves me. God the Father loves me. He knows me, cares for me, orders and directs all things for me. He loves me. He knows best. Even when I don't. I know it's so hard to believe. I know it is. It's hard to believe, especially when we're in the midst of the trial, how that God will work it out for good. And I've come to find out, the longer I've been alive, which isn't that long, I know, but one of the best ways to really know this truth is when you know someone of great faith who, when they endure a great trial, a bitter providence, says, my father knows best. You may be familiar with the story of Horatio Spafford, who in 1873 sent his family, wife, and four daughters ahead of him to Europe from the United States. And then on November 22nd, 1873, the ship was making its way across the Atlantic Ocean. It was struck by another ship. It capsized, and 216 passengers died, including his four daughters. Only his wife, who was found barely alive. And so when the news reached Horatio about what had happened, he immediately boarded a boat to rejoin his wife. And as the ship was passing over the place where the ship on which his family was on sunk, where his children were buried in the water, the captain cabled him and said, I believe we're passing over the place where they're buried. So he goes and he stands out of the deck and these words the Spirit of God brought to him was, the, was this. It is well. Let the will of God be done. Later he would, when reflecting on this, pen these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. History teaches us, the scriptures teach us, that the Christian will not be unacquainted with sorrows that roll like sea billows. We will endure many trials. 
but the knowledge of providence assures us that nothing will happen aimlessly or without purpose, but that God will too even take that trial, that pain, and turn it for our good. That's how we can say it as well. Let's notice also that the Shunammite, even though she's expressing this great faith, still says she's hurt. She's not stoic. She's not passive here. She's not acting as if she's unaffected by death she has, because she has faith, but she still expresses her hurt. It says, when she came to the mountain of God, she got hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she says, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? You can see that question. It seems like you deceived me, Elisha. She's clearly upset and mystified by this tragedy. But look what she's doing. She's grabbing hold to the feet of the man of God. It's as if she's clinging to God himself. What an application for us, congregation, even in bitter providence. Still seek the Lord. Faith is to be active, pursuing God. Five times in this chapter it says, she went, she went, she went, she went, she went. She's pursuing an answer. She's pursuing the Lord. And so we see, finally, providence means that we can be assured that everything goes to God's plan. But Christian, what is God's plan for your life? God's plan for you is not destruction, or pain, God's plan for you is glory. God's plan for you is glory. Yet we are sinners. How can it be that we would be welcomed into glory, accepted before Him? How can it be Do not miss this this evening. We can be welcomed into glory, into the presence of God, because Christ has experienced the bitterest of providences. There is no providence more bitter than the crucifixion of Christ. He sweated drops of blood. Upon the cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Yet in Gethsemane he prays, your will be done. He prays, my father knows best. Shalom. It is well. It's through Christ that God meets our need even though we will endure the bitter providences of this life. As Charles Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. What providence is pushing you to your knees? But remember that that's where God wants us. On our knees, looking to Christ, 
Lord, be with me. And so this precious woman, we see she has an active faith in God. She will not leave unless the prophet comes with her. He travels all the way back to Shunem. He rests his body on top of the boys, and he raises the son of promise from the dead. We see her bitter providence has turned to joy. Her sorrow to rejoicing in the resurrection. She surrenders her life to the providence of God. And providence led her to the resurrection of the Son. God met her need. Her pain and suffering was not pointless. But it was for the purpose of leading her to a greater trust and reliance upon God. Again, what affliction are you going through? God is with you. This trial is from his hand. And its purpose is to lead you to glory in the resurrection of the dead. In Christ. So in conclusion, I want to look at these words from the Apostle Paul this evening. Paul likewise says, this light, momentary affliction, this life, he's saying, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying this life, compared to the glory to come, is just light affliction. God has done it all, worked in it all, prepared it all that he might lead you to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Congregation, God has done all things well. If it results in your salvation, it's perfect and good. He has done all things well, past, present, and future. Even the bitter trials that we endure are from his hand. But the Christian can be comforted to know that God prepares the way before us, that he can lead you to glory. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we give you thanks for this word of comfort unto us, that even though the Christian will endure trials and tribulations in this life, that there is resurrection to come for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that he endured the bitterest of providences, he cried out upon the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet, Lord, you forsook your Son for our great gain, for our salvation. We pray, Lord, that as we endure many trials and afflictions in this life, we might say, with Christ and Gethsemane, Thy will be done. Shalom. It is well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.